Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Jason Marzak, the uh, Deputy Director of the Adrian Arsch Latin America Center. And on behalf of our center, I'd like to thank you all for joining us today and those who are watching us by webcast as well. For the most recent poll of Cuban uh, pub a public opinion on Cuba among Americans, this one, though, in the heartland. We are pleased to be partnering with the Engage Cuba Coalition on the launch of this poll, both here and in states uh, in which we did this poll, uh, including Tennessee and Ohio. And I'd like to specifically thank James Williams there in the third row, who's the president of the Engage Cuba Coalition, for his great partnership and, and friendship throughout. Uh, in February of 2014, the Atlantic Council broke new ground with the first ever comprehensive national poll on U.S.-Cuba relations. That poll, which received significant national media attention, demonstrated that most Americans favor normalization between the two countries. And then, as you all know, 10 months later, President Obama acted and radically changed the U.S.-Cuba relationship, restoring diplomatic relations, opening tra trade and travel, and taking away many of the restrictions that existed for the last five decades, doing, in fact, many of the things that we had actually polled on just months earlier. Now, almost a year la later, inspired by the belief that our country's relationship with Cuba is an issue that goes beyond Washington or Miami politics, the Atlantic Council returned to the field. This time we polled voters in four states in the heartland, Tennessee, Ohio, Indiana, and Iowa, to learn how they view the president's policy changes. Now, why these four states? Well, it wasn't just an excuse to go hear country music or go watch Hoosier basketball in Indiana. As a presidential race heats up, and as Congress continues to wrestle with its potential role in changing U.S.-Cuba law, these states are critical, either due to them being swing states in the presidential contest, critical in the primaries, and or having senators or congressmen whose positions on these issues will be critical for defining our policy going forward. I'll leave it to our pollster, uh, Glenn Bolger, to unveil the detailed results. But overall, what we found is the majority of respondents in these four red or purple states from across the political spectrum favor the engagement and would like to see it further expanded. While striking to many, these do not come as a surprise to those who understand the limitations that current Cuba policy imposes on Americans. Whether you ask someone in Nashville, in Columbus, or in Des Moines, Americans demand the freedom to travel and trade and invest where they see fit. And we'll be going to Ohio and to Tennessee to have these conversations with the results in hand. The results, as our panelists will discuss in length, comes at a critical time in our country. With presidential primaries on the horizon, it's a critical moment for candidates to hear what these important voters think. Now, President Obama has done the vast majority of what he can in advancing the U.S.-Cuba relationship, but the bulk of the remaining restrictions lie in Congress's hands. And one of the key questions we'll ask here today is whether elected officials are really ready to listen to their constituencies, especially in these critical states. Major Garrett of CBS News, Bill Lane of Caterpillar, and Stephen Law of American Crossroads and Engage Cuba will provide us with a variety of perspectives on the implications this poll has on the future of U.S.-Cuba relations. Unfortunately, Michelle Caruso Cabrera, our um, other panelist of CNBC, had to go to Paris to cover the, the unfortunate tragedy there. This event is on the record, so please feel free to get out your phones, but only to tweet uh, about this event using the hashtag ACCuba. And with that, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce Glenn Bolger. Glenn is our pollster in this survey, and this is not the first time that Glenn finds himself here. He was part of the team of pollsters who conducted our poll a year and a half ago, and he so has lo much loved working with us that he decided to work with us yet again. 
A hugely respected Republican pollster, Glenn has polled for governors, congressmen, and senators, including former Speaker of the House John Boehner, and is now here to walk us through the results. After Glenn speaks, Peter Schechter, the Senator Director, will formally introduce the panel and captain the rest of the event. Again, thank you all for joining us today. Glenn. Well, I was uh, told I have seven minutes to uh, walk you through this survey, uh, and that's you know it, it, that's pretty impressive to ask a pollster to be brief. That's like asking me to, to be thin. You can ask. That doesn't mean it'll happen. Um, let me talk first about the methodology. Thanks for laughing over there. Um, <laughs> you can get an extra banana uh, bread. Um, we did the survey October 15th through the 18th uh, among. Uh, 600 voters in each, I mean, total 100, 150 in each state. We did 210 cell phone interviews, uh, and the survey has a margin of plus or minus 4.0 uh, across the 600 interviews. First, I want to just talk about the political environment in the state because it's, it's fairly relevant. Uh, and that is, is that uh, voters, like we see na na nationally, are pretty pessimistic about the direction of the country. Only 27% say the country's going in the right direction. 70% say it's off on the wrong track. And I'll, I'll cut, come back to that in a minute, uh, why that's important. Uh, first, uh, I want to talk about the image of Cuba. We asked whether voters are favorable or unfavorable, or if they didn't really know enough to have an opinion. And as you can see, voters are polarized. 30% are favorable to Cuba, 31% are unfavorable. The rest don't have an opinion. So there's still a lot of definition of Cuba that's, that hasn't been done uh, to, to voters. Uh, you can see Republicans are, are negative. Only 14% are favorable, 50% are unfavorable to Cuba, whereas Democrats are the mirror opposite at 48 favorable, 11 unfavorable. And independents, as they often are, are right down, smack dab in the middle, 31 favorable, 29 unfavorable. Um, let me go ahead and in the interest of time, move along. Then we asked uh, a series of questions about recent changes or potential changes with Cuba. And the first was that, uh, as you may know, the United States recently restored formal diplomatic relations with Cuba. Do you approve or disapprove? 68% approve of this. 26% disapprove across these four states. Um, and as you can see by party, uh, Democrats wildly approve at 94%. Independents are essentially two to one at 61 to 32. Republicans are much closer, but you still have a plurality at 48 to 44 approving. And the intensity, the strongly approved compared to strongly disapprove, is nearly two to one in support. There's just not a lot of strong opposition uh, in these four states uh, to the recent restoration of formal diplomatic relations. And then when you look at it across the states, uh, the lowest is Tennessee, but even there it's two to one, 62% approve, 31% disapprove. Ohio, uh, which as everyone here knows is one of the two most important swing states in the presidential contest, 78% approve, 16% disapprove. Um, and then on the trade embargo, uh, would you favor or oppose the U.S. ending its trade embargo against Cuba? 58% would favor that, 35% oppose it. Intensity is a little bit closer, but still 27 strongly favor compared to the 20% who strongly oppose. 
Here you have Republicans opposed at 42 to 51, whereas Democrats strongly favored at 79-17. Independents, you have a majority, uh, 52 to 37. But keep in mind, as you look at these data, this is not your typical partisan polarization on an issue. The difference between 42 and 51 among Republicans is not that significant. It's almost a coin flip. Uh, when you see a polarized issue where the two parties are strongly opposed to each other, if Democrats support something 79 to 17 like they do here, if it's really polarized issue, that means Republicans would oppose it about by the reverse. 70, you know, it'd be like 17-20 favor, uh, you'd have 79-80, 81% opposed, or vice versa. You know, if Republicans strongly support something, if it's truly polarized, then you have Democrats opposing it by about the same level. So even with the trade embargo, even with Republicans a majority opposing, it's a very slim majority and it's not uh, you know, a real third rail issue uh, among Republicans. And that's nothing to sneeze at, Gesundheit, by the way. Um, <laughs> by state, uh, Ohio is again the most supportive of ending the embargo, but you have a majority in every state, including Tennessee at 51%. Uh, who favor uh, opposing the embargo. Uh, oops, I'm sorry, there we go. It's better if I put the chart up. Uh, and then when you look at it by ethnicity, you can see that minority voters are more in favor of ending the embargo, but even a majority of whites, a strong majority, 57% uh, support ending it. And then white Democrats, uh, very supportive, as are African Americans. Um, looking at it by gender and age, Really, there's not a significant difference uh, between most of the groups except younger women. Uh, and again, remember, these were done with likely voters, uh, so that's why the younger and older women numbers are fairly uh, close together in terms of what percent they, or you know, what percent they are of the electorate. Um, and you know, younger women. And by the way, uh, you'll note that younger men and younger women are ages 18 to 54. We're talking about voters, and it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm 53 and still like to be in that younger. Uh, cohort, but you can see uh, younger women, it's not that they're more opposed, they just happen to be a little bit more undecided on the issue. And then uh, how about American travel? Would you favor or oppose the U.S. government ending all restrictions on Americans traveling to Cuba? This also gets very strong support, uh, just like the restoration of diplomatic relations, it's up to 67% who favor. And look at the intensity, 36% strongly favor, only 13% strongly opposed. So it's nearly three to one in terms of strongly favor. And you again have majorities across all parties. Uh, you have Republicans at 54% uh, who favor it, independents two thirds, and Democrats 83% uh, favoring travel in these four states, uh, ending the restrictions on, on travel to Cuba. Um, and then uh, again, you see Ohio the most supportive, but again, more than 60% in all, each of the four states uh, favor ending the restrictions. Um, then we tested some messages. We tested three messages on both sides, pro um, ending the embargo and anti ending the trade embargo. Uh, and it was, so, and keep in mind as you look at these, I'm sorry, as you look at these, we both randomized the messages within the, the blocks of questions and we rotated uh, the blocks of questions. So of the 600 respondents, 300 heard the anti-messaging first and the pro-messaging second. Three, the other 300 heard the pro-messaging first and the con-messaging second. Okay, so it was you know, rotated and randomized within the blocks. Uh, the three messages that we tested uh, in terms of ending the embargo against Cuba, 
Uh, one of them dealt with restricting travel. 62% said that was convincing, including 29%, very convincing. Uh, the agricultural exports benefiting, 60% said that's convincing, 22 very convincing. So not a lot of as much intensity on these next two as there were on the first one. And then uh, the 50 years, uh, Cuba's had a monopoly on power. Now there's a growing private sector, support this new voice. Uh, again, 62% said that's convincing, 21% very convincing. Uh, opposition was pretty set at 37% across those messages. In terms of the anti-messages, uh, the one that actually tested out of the six total messages, the strongest is some Cuban Americans continue to oppose normalization because little has changed on the island. There is no democracy, the same leaders are in charge, and human rights abuses continue. That was 70% convincing, including 32% very convincing. So that does have some, uh, uh, some potency to it. The other two, not nearly as strong. They tested in the low to mid-50s. Uh, and, and one is that we, you know, getting nothing in return and we can cave in our negotiations. The other is that the money coming from Cuba, I mean, coming from the U.S. will not help Cuba. It will only uh, keep the, um, the regime on its last legs. Then we did what's called an informed ballot uh, on the trade embargo. So after they heard both sides, you know, three arguments of, for each, we then tested and said, okay, now that you've heard some more information, would you favor or oppose the U.S. ending its trade embargo against Cuba? It really did not affect the data at all. You know, statistically, no change. You had the favor go up one point. You also had the oppose go up one point. So even with these arguments back and forth, uh, again, three on each side, uh, one of which, the, one of the anti-messages was the strongest message that we tested. It didn't really have any kind of impact on how people felt about uh, Cuba. Um, and you'll note that by political party, things really didn't change much at all. Republican support, and, and this is on the trade embargo, which was the lowest scoring of the, um, uh, and, and kind of the, the most, uh, it still had a majority support, but it was the lowest scoring. Republicans only moved one point, independents two points, Democrats stayed where they were. So it really did not have that much of an impact. Uh, the messaging um, voters kind of, even if they don't feel like they know a ton about Cuba, they, they, they have a, a, an opinion uh, and, and they're with it. Again, not much change by state either. So just the bottom line, and since I'm running towards the end of my seven minutes, um, I'll, I'll be brief. Um, look, the, the voters in these four heartland states of Indiana, Iowa, Ohio, and Tennessee, they're not particularly fond of Cuba. It doesn't have the best image. 30 favorable, 31 unfavorable, but they do support the restoration of diplomatic relations. The majority do support ending the trade embargo, and there's strong support for ending restrictions on Americans traveling to Cuba as well. Um, and <coughs> you have uh, healthy majorities of independent voters, uh, and that's important in a state like Iowa and, and, and Ohio in particular, who back the recent restoration of uh, diplomatic relations back to ending the trade embargo and support uh, the ending the restrictions on Americans traveling to Cuba. Republican voters are not quite as supportive as, as independents are, but you have a majority who support ending the travel restriction. You have a plurality support the restoration of diplomatic relations. There's more opposition, but again, it's kind of mixed bag towards ending the trade embargo. Um, and then finally, the last point I would make is, look, these changes in policy are broadly supported and they're no longer third rail issues among Republican voters and conservative voters. Uh, so with that, I would like to uh, bring up our moderator and the rest of the panel. So thank you.
Have a, have a seat. Major. Great. Thanks very much, Glenn, for that, uh, for that great presentation. I'm, I'm Peter Schechter. I'm the director of the Adrian Arch Latin America Center. And just so everybody knows, Glenn's presentation, along with the full cross tabs, a lot of infographics and other materials are posted on our website. I want to just take the opportunity to reiterate Jason's welcome to everybody. Thanks for being here, and in particular, thanks to our friends at Engage Cuba and to our panelists for taking, for taking time out of the day. Jason began by, by talking a little bit about how important this moment is in Cuban-American relations. We're at a moment of huge change, like Taiwan with China or apartheid with Africa. We, for decades, faced a big structural issue in our relations with Latin America, and one was immigration and the other one was Cuba, and we've made huge progress in the last year on the second one. And indeed, I think the strategic insight of President Obama's policy was to remove the United States from the conversation about Cuba. Somebody from Buenos Aires can call up his best friend in Mexico City and talk about Cuba's substantial human rights problems without necessarily having to talk about the United States policy of regime change. And so while our policy of regime change may be officially over, our policy of economic sanctions is far from done. And indeed, there's a considerable way to go to before we can call this issue done and we've removed the embargo. So the question I want everybody to think about today is how important is a poll like this? When we launched our first poll last year, uh, I was lucky enough to go to Chicago and David Axelrod very kindly joined a, a panel with me and he said, Polls for politicians are like crack cocaine. But, he said, when politicians then become policymakers, the addiction gets reduced massively. And so, members of Congress are both. They are politician and policymakers. And the question we have today is how can a poll like the one we're discussing affect members of Congress? And in particular, how can a poll like this affect the fence sitters? And there are a lot of fence-sitters in Congress. Um, and can you blame them? Um, you know, there is, there is certainly a lot of passion, a lot of personal history, a lot of ideology on this issue. And so, you know, when in the Republican Party alone, and in one important committee alone, you've got Senator Marco Rubio and his very personal history on the issue on one side of the argument. You've got Senator Jeff Flake on the other side of the argument, who for very conservative reasons, thinks that the travel ban and the embargo are unnecessarily restrictive to Americans. So as we talk about the meaning of these numbers, let's think whether are these numbers a call to action to mobilize on a gridlocked issue, or is 2016 just too volatile a political year to get anything done? So we've got a great panel here to decode these issues. Uh, and I just want to make a very quick introduction. Glenn's been introduced, so uh, I want to start with Major Garrett from CBS News, Chief White House Correspondent, whose coverage of the presidency has included everything from Russia to Ebola to ISIS. So today we're giving you a really easy subject to talk about. Um, Bill Lane, the Senior Director of Global Government and Corporate Affairs at Caterpillar. Bill has been active in the implementation of free trade agreements throughout Latin America and is a big advocate for the role of business in the developing world. 
And last, Steve Law is the president and CEO of American Crossroads, one of the largest Republican super PACs in the country, and also an advisor to engage Cuba. He served as uh, chief of staff to Senator Mitch McConnell and was the deputy secretary of labor for President Bush. You should all know that I've told them privately but I'm gonna tell them publicly. This, we like a Latin American feel in this panel, so interrupt, you, you can get agitated. <laughs> so, Major, yes. is 2016, are we frozen out? Is, yeah. Can anything happen on this issue this so look, year? You asked a second ago, has this been a volatile political year? I think we all know the answer to that, uh, especially on the Republican side. I've been spending a lot of time uh, covering Republican presidential politics about the last four months. I was there when President Obama announced this change uh, in substantial change in diplomatic relations with Cuba and spent a lot of time talking to members of Congress immediately after that. So just a couple of quick points to try to give you a sense of 2016 from my vantage point. Glenn's poll showed that the respondents in the four states were okay with the normalization of relations. I think that's because that's done. That was a unilateral move by the president, can't stop it, can't reverse it, just, just deal with it. But on the other two issues, travel ban and tra trade embargo, there is resistance that you see among Republicans. It's not as large as you see on most issues, and it doesn't have that polarized mirror image that you see on a lot of issues, but it's still there. So I think for Republicans, and particularly Republican leadership, and let's be honest, six months ago we would not have said Speaker of the House Paul Ryan or Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady, but now that's the reality. We can't predict all of the tumultuous things that will happen in the House Republican <coughs> Conference, but we better have a sense generally of where they sit on this. And there is some impetus to bring the travel restrictions off the board and maybe deal with the trade embargo. But there's going to need to be a huge push. And I just think Congress is going to be trapped in a sort of an atmosphere, an inclination towards inertia. And one other thing I would say on this, this does not get discussed on the campaign trail by Republicans at all. Now, in one sense, that's probably beneficial for your orientation to this issue because no one's pounding on it in a negative way. And if Marco Rubio thought that it was a vote getter in Iowa, New Hampshire, anywhere else, you can be certain he would talk about it. He does not. But nobody else who's an advocate for this is on board with it or talks about it. And it's hard sometimes to figure out where people would actually land if pressed on the question. Chris Christie's a bit gray on it. So is Jeb Bush, which is sort of interesting if you just think about his experience as Florida governor. But it's not cutting any way, shape, or form on the campaign trail. So that doesn't give anything for Congress to think about or do or act on. So it's going to have to be driven from the bottom up. And the one other factor I would say is the Tea Party movement within the House Republican Conference is not insignificant, and it does have an embedded sense of skepticism about anything that, quote, big business is in favor of. And if big business, and I'm not saying big business is the only interested party here, but it is an interested party, that's an underlying structural impediment with dealing with at least one part of the House Republican Conference. So this is a conversation that has now been joined for the first time in 50 years. One of the things you can do in politics Uniquely, if you're the president in this case, you can call the question. The president's called the question. And now the country is digesting the idea of U.S.-Cuba relations in an entirely different context. As you said in the introduction, that's not insignificant. That is a huge deal. That creates possibilities. But possibilities sometimes require patience. And I think 2016 just does not, at the moment, lay down in a way that makes this an issue that's going to jump to the front of the agenda or be passed uh, in any time soon. There's one thing I would just say that could change the dynamic. Uh, no, no matter who ends up being nominated on either side, you could easily see a scenario where that person is not going to want to deal with Cuban policy in the first six months of their administration. 
and you've got at least one policy issue, the ending the, the ban on, on uh, U.S. travel to Cuba, that has uh, mainstream and broad support. And you could see you know, a tip of the hat to uh, leadership saying, I'd like you to move this issue off the table by moving it forward uh, in 2016, getting it off uh, the board so it's not an issue that I have to deal with when I uh, become uh, president. Uh, as uh, uh, Major said, there are significant impediments to that on the Hill, but I think there's, there's a reason to get ready for action next year uh, because you could see in the fall that there'd be a desire to take this issue off the table, start to move part of the agenda forward uh, because an incoming president on either side no matter who that nominee is going to be, may not want to tackle this in the first three to five months of their administration. So we, yeah, let me, let me use the segue of big business yeah. because um, I'm the representative. <laughs> I guess you're business. the representative. And right? I, I, I want you to know just and what our, business, big my, business would like to say. Well, is, my biggest yeah. fear is that Caterpillar someday becomes a small business, so I'm going to do everything I can <laughs> right. to keep that from happening. Right. And, and that's one of the reasons why we're so active on trade. Um, we're one of the country's biggest exporters, and we're always looking for ways to open foreign markets or make them more open. So all the FTAs, whether it's Chile or Peru or Colombia, these are Panama, these were big priorities for the company, that widespread uh, employee support. And we really feel on several of them, we really did make the, the difference. But probably the biggest uh, opportunity is when you can convince the U.S. government to let you sell to another market. And uh, sometimes you can't because there's multilateral sanctions. Everybody gets together and they, they work collectively to try to bring pressure on a, on a regime to bring about change. And sometimes that works. I think we had some success with Iran. And there are other examples where it's worked. But the one thing that never works is when you have unilateral sanctions where it's just the United States, and the United States thinks just by the, the will of force that it can force another country to, to go somewhere else by uh, having an embargo saying, we will not sell to you. You'll have to buy it from your competitor or our competitors. And that just doesn't work. Uh, you're you're, you're hard-pressed to come up with any examples going back to the Peloponnesian War when one country puts a unilateral sanction on another. So you know the, the macro question to political candidates isn't uh, whether you believe in Cuba or not. Do you believe in unilateral sanctions? Do you think the United States, by itself, by just the will of commercial engagement or isolation, can bring about effective change? Whether it's a small country like Cuba, whether it's a big country like China, whether it's Japan, whether it's Mexico, all of these countries right now are in the debate as far as whether we should have sanctions, unilateral sanctions or not. That's the macro question. If you think that Cuba is a positive for Republicans, it would be brought up at every debate. It has yet to be brought up at all. Republicans are doing their best to avoid eye contact on this issue because there are certain people they don't want to embarrass. But let me just tell you right now, they're hearing from constituents. The baby boomers want to go to uh, Cuba. They want to do it before they need a walker. And uh, when you think about the time frame on Cuba, 55 years, you know, almost everyone in this room will be needing a walker if, if we double that period of time. And secondly, farmers want to do it. And this is the last point, and this is the point where I think we all have to be much more uh, forward-leaning. Don't bury your lead. The reason why Caterpillar wants to, do business, wants to open up trade with Cuba is we want to sell to Cuba. We want to export to Cuba. We want to trade with Cuba. And we think by doing so, a lot of positive things are going to happen. But the main reason is we want 
to have a market that has historically been, had a great preference for American products, has a strong desire based on our recent trips to buy American brands, and we have a home field advantage in this market, and we've seeded that home field uh, advantage for 55 years, some of which was justifiable, but for the last 17 years it has not been. And just like a cicada, after 17 <laughs> years it's time to change the policy. So Do you what, two quick things, one on the calendar and one on the behavior. The calendar is, in 2016, in different phases, European partners will lift sanctions on Russia and then they'll lift sanctions on Iran. And then that, as Bill indicated, we'll have unilateral sanctions against both. And in Cuba, uh, what we could see and what could build pressure in the Republican Congress is unilateral sanctions there, remittances from America to Cuba that buy products that are not American because right. we can't trade there. And so people like Bill and others will go to members of Congress and say, logically, do you think this makes any sense for this country? Money earned here, sent back to Cuba to their family members, buying products that we can't sell to in a market we're closed out from. How much sense does that make? That's one part of the calendar and sort of something that could change the underlying political dynamic. Behavior of the Cuban government also matters a great deal here. What they do or don't do will have a big part of this conversation among those who are hesitant in the Republican Party to go down this road for justifiable reasons based on human rights and political oppression. So the behavior of the Cubans, and, they're, and they now are in a completely different category, because I've covered four or five or six different Summit of the Americas with American presidents. And the last one I covered in Panama City, for the first time the Cubans were there, and they gave a speech, and everyone had a conversation about everything but the embargo, the, but the isolation of America and Cuba and that long-standing relationship. And so the Cubans now, in all their conversations, all their travels, everything in the region can no longer explain the, everything about their life right. is calcified and immovable because of the bad American government to the north. And that does change the dynamic and the conversation in the region. And I hope, and I think everyone in this room hopes, it changes the behavior of the Cuban government. But what they do with this new opportunity matters as much as anything the American Congress does on this issue. Certainly the, the biggest objection that, uh, that Republican members on the Hill have is, uh, first of all, that this is uh, President Obama's idea, and so therefore it must be uh, somehow suspect. But, but if, if you get down to more substantive terms, it's the, the notion that this administration, when it conducts foreign policy, gets nothing in return. And I think over time, being able to show that it gets something in return whittles away that argument. But I have to say, having now spent some time uh, pushing forward on this issue, talking to members of Congress, uh, obviously this is uh, not an administration uh, whose foreign policy is popular with the Republican caucus on the Hill. Uh, the, the members who are very much against change in this area have a lot of friendships within that caucus, and yet, despite all that, uh, there's a tremendous amount of openness to this policy. And going to your original question about why a poll like this matters, it matters because it shows members on the Hill that people back in their home districts actually care. Uh, it, this, these aren't numbers that, uh, these aren't 78, 90% approval numbers, uh, but they're numbers that show that people in their home districts think that change needs to happen. On the travel uh, portion, certainly right away, but, but there's even openness uh, on, the, on the trade embargo, and this is an issue where you see uh, independence following the pro-reform uh, direction, and that's going to be very, very important to members on the Hill who are trying to figure out where is this issue going down the road for their own constituents, not nationally, not in some other poll, but in their own states. Well, you, you've just started answering the question I was going to throw at you, which is, so, you know, you have somebody who really hasn't expressed much of an opinion, like Chairman Corker, for example. Yeah. So how, 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 does, how does it, he's got 
two very opposing views within his, within, on his side of the aisle and in, in his committee. So how does a poll like this change the calculus for him? And how does, how, how does he figure that in? And how does a poll like this move him to take a position? Can, it, w will he do it? And you know, can, is there a, are there partial steps? Are there not everything, but maybe the, tra the travel ban? Sure. Yeah, I, I obviously can't speak for uh, Senator Corker personally and haven't talked to him about it, but I, I think this is the sort of issue where uh, a member like him is going to be very concerned about the caucus as a whole and very concerned uh, about those who, who care about the issue strongly on the other side, and uh, there's going to be a certain amount of uh, needle threading that has to be done. But a poll like this begins the process of giving permission to uh, evaluate this issue that uh, up until recently has largely been viewed as an Obama administration uh, foreign policy uh, uh, priority and translates it to concerns uh, in his home state. Uh, and again, uh, going to uh, Bill's point, the, the, the lobbying and advocacy by the business community, both large and small, uh, both industrial as well as agricultural, uh, causes members to take a fresh look and say, you know, I, I really do need to care about this. I, I, I think uh, Bill's phrase is particularly memorable. You know, they, they, you know, they avert your gaze on this issue. They don't want to establish eye contact. It makes them have to establish eye contact with the mumble. issue and take a, yeah, and mumble too, right, right. Well, as a, as a Norwegian, I'm used to mumbling myself, but, uh, um, but uh, it, it, it requires you to start to have to stand up and take a position and figure out. I mean, let, let's not fool ourselves. You know, members of Congress, they do a poll every day. Every time they talk to their constituents, every time they, they go on a, on a TV program or anything like that, they know what the poll is. And, you know, you ask Republicans, you ask moderate Republicans, you ask, uh, you know, freshman Republicans, do you hear about Cuba? And they go, yeah, we hear about Cuba, you know. Our constituents want to go to Cuba, they want to see what it's like, and they want to, uh, especially the farmers, they want to sell to Cuba. That's, that's the two consistent themes you get. And they go, but we got a lot of other priorities and things of that sort. Now, occasionally there's an epiphany. This poll could be that epiphany. For us, uh, we took uh, eight Caterpillar executives, including uh, one of our uh, top executives in our foundation down to Cuba in April. We did a thorough reconnaissance of, of the market opportunities and what have you. And you know what our conclusion was? Was all this time we thought we were isolating Cuba. We were the ones that were isolated. Right. The, uh, the Europeans owned the mining sector. The Japanese own the construction sector. The Chinese are trying to get in there. We were the ones that didn't realize what was going on there. It wasn't the, our competitors. They're fully engaged in Cuba. Now, um, the, the, the last thing that just happened two weeks ago, the Chamber of Commerce started up the US-Cuba Business Council. And this is very important for us to, for advocacy and what have you. But it also gives us a way to constructively start making suggestions to the Cubans, because I have to tell you, a lot's going to have to change in Cuba. I mean, the first thing that has to go is the embargo and the, uh, the travel restrictions. But for uh, Cuba to be a robust market, not just sort of a, a, a blip on the radar screen, they're going to have to make changes. They're going to have to invite uh, capital. They're going to have to uh, make some market reforms. If they do that, it's going to be a robust market. Everything that Caterpillar makes is needed in Cuba everything. And so the question is, how do you get the wherewithal for that to happen? The World Bank can play a role. They've got to join the IMF. Uh, the Interdevelopment Bank is, is obviously key to this. There are some big infrastructure projects. They, they, don't have, they don't need to rebuild their infrastructure. They need to build an infrastructure. That's the sweet spot for Caterpillar. Glenn, let me, just, let me just, let me, Glenn's been wanting to jump in, so yeah, go ahead. He's, he's the quiet, demure type, so I need to prod him out. Uh, going back to the poll, uh, as, as, as Stephen said, look, I can't project what uh, Chairman Corker's mindset is. But overall, keep in mind what is motivating members of Congress 
quite a bit politically is on both sides is to avoid uh, primaries or certainly a tough primary. Nobody wants to be the next Eric Cantor. And uh, so, you know, they, wanna, they don't want to take on hot button issues that are going to cause problems in their own base. Well, the data is very clear that with the Democrats, you know, they're Democratic voters in these four states, and I would dare say, you know, nationwide, uh, are, are fine with these. So that's certainly not, a, not an issue. So then when you, if you're a Republican member looking at these data, it's very reasonable to conclude this is not a hot button issue. Right. This is not Panama Canal in 1976. Uh, or, you know, that will stir up a hornet's nest. This is something that, at worst, Republicans are fairly divided on. Uh, so it's not going to be something where you've got, you know, a whole storm of people really upset, except maybe in certain precincts in South Florida, uh, about this issue. But can I, can I just follow up with that? I mean, what is, to me, epiphanist, because somebody used that word, I think, right? Yeah. Epiphanist about this poll is the comparison to last year. I mean, if you look at the poll you did, one year ago, and the, the poll and the, and this poll, it just seems like we've come a long way in st st among among conservative voters who just believe that this is yeah this was the right thing to do. In a, you know conservative voters who, who don't want to give the administration any bennies, but they do on this. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons you see that is as as uh, I think Ma Major noted, it, well it's happened. So you know, it, 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 and the world hasn't fallen off the edge, uh, so it's not the end of, the, you know, everything's fine with that. And the other is a kind of a weariness of, look, we've had this one policy for 55 years, um, and guess what, that hasn't worked, where we've seen democracy and freedom spread, for example, in Eastern Europe after the, you know, uh, when the Berlin, Berlin Wall came crashing down, it's because, uh, you know, that was hastened by more activity and more connection with the U.S. and other democracies. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that a lot of conservatives and Republicans are turning to the idea of, look, what we tried didn't work. Let's try something different. Let's try, you know, smothering them with, uh, smothering oppression with freedom. Yeah. I, think, I think that maybe the most significant impact of what the president did uh, last December was remind people that we have a, a Cuba embargo. I think, I think this was an issue that had kind of gone to sleep in a lot of voters' minds on, on all sides. And uh, you know, his action forced people to face up to the fact we've had this policy for 50-some years, and, and you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who could point to any significant success that it's achieved, to, to Glenn's point. And so I, I think as a result, it, it's kind of pushed out, and this poll I think shows it, it's pushed out some of the, 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 the inherent politics of it. It's, it's less of the fact that you know, oh, President Obama's for it, I'm concerned about that. Some of my friends are against it, I'm concerned about that. And it's more just your average Americans looking at it and just thinking, this is, this is really something of the past, and it needs to change. And, uh, and I think it's that perspective that this poll shows is going on with voters as a whole and increasingly with voters on the right. Major. There's an interesting conversation that you could have with House Republicans who are in the Freedom Caucus, if you will, because they are very much attuned to the sharing economy, <coughs> Uber, Airbnb, everything that works in that sort of individual entrepreneur involving himself or herself in the broader economy on their own terms, on their own time schedule. When I was in Panama City talking to a lot of the folks who were down there about what are the things that are popping in Cuba now, one of the most interesting businesses in Cuba and one of the most successful operations in Cuba is Airbnb. Individual Cubans renting out their properties to people who can travel there and get there on their own. So philosophically, what does this tell you? It tells you that there is a desire 
and the government can't regulate it, they can't go all around and find everyone who wants to do this. It creates individual economic choices and they're with, they're with the liberty of, some, of a certain dimension. Yeah. And it provides autonomy, at least economically. And if you are in favor of that philosophically, what does the travel ban mean to you? How does that fit within your philosophical construct? I think it's an interesting conversation to have with Republicans who are hesitant or skeptical about this, but look at this actual thing that's happening. If you're in favor of Uber in San Diego, my hometown, or San Francisco, or New York, or anywhere else, are you going to be hostile to Airbnb in Havana? I think it's an interesting question. You know, one of the other things, and I can't talk about the Freedom Coalition, but as, as far as the Tea Party, you know, when we were doing Colombia and Panama and what have you, and the White House was very clear, we're only going to do Korea, we're not going to do the Latin FTAs. And we pushed back in a very, very serious way. The excuse that we were given, they said, it's not because of us, it's because of the Tea Party. The Tea Party turned out to be the strongest free trade voting bloc for those FTAs. I think only one member of the... Uh, uh, um, Tea Party voted against the three FTAs. It was an overwhelming. I, I really don't know where they're going to come down on, on Cuba because you can make the case that more commerce uh, will generate more reform. Uh, other people will, will take the other step. But the thing that's the most frustrating of all is the fact that people say, well, we've got to go slow. We've got to be hesitant. We've got to do this and that. This has been 55 years. I mean, you weren't even born, for God's sakes. And the, uh, and, and, and you know, was I. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, wa I was. I mean, I, I was. But the, uh, but, but, but the bottom line is, you know, you know, this is football season. If you had a football coach who every play ran off tackle and never got a yard, after 55 seasons, what would you do? You might try a pass. You might try an end around. You might do a um, uh, hail mary. Who knows what you do? You might fire but the coach. One thing you're not going to do. <laughs> That'd be a baseball. Fan. That's right. But I mean, this is this has gone beyond the ridiculous. This is the sublime, and it is time for a new policy. And the only way we're going to get this done in this in this Congress is to make it an issue and have people have a serious debate on whether we want a 1960 policy or whether we want a, a more dynamic. You can't talk about Uber if you're, in, if you're embracing the 1960s. You can't talk about uh, B&Bs and, and Airbnb. I mean, there's change that's going on there, but the thing is when you take the embargo and the travel restrictions off the table, you'll put far more pressure on uh, promoting reform in Cuba than we've done in the last couple decades. You can make a case that early on there was a, a national security reason for, uh, for the embargo, but you can't make that case for the last uh, 17, 18 Bill, can years. Bill, can I just follow up on, on Major brought a, a, a great point, which is sort of you know, the benefit to the people of Cuba and sort of how, how the sharing economy can, can benefit them. But you, know, you, you are a company that hire people all over the world. Absolutely. And, and ha, ha, take, take us through an example of what, whether it's Indonesia or Peru or what, how, how does foreign investment really impact the lives of, of, uh, of, know, I, of people? And, you know, I, I, I lived through the whole China uh, deal. Actually, I have to say, this is one area where I'm not as optimistic uh, on Cuba than I was on, on China. Every time I used to go to China, and this is starting in the early 90s, the attention to detail, the constant improvement, the fact that people were paying attention to all aspects of their job, you know, it got better and better. You go to, you go to Cuba and um, the best jobs in Cuba are in the service uh, sector. It's your waiters, it's your waitresses and what have you. They make more money than a surgeon. 
I don't see that attention to detail yet. Now, maybe that's just because there's a, there's a capacity of hotel rooms and they're at full capacity and whatever. But I want to start seeing that, that constant improvement that you've seen all over the world, whether that's in, in China, whether that's in Vietnam, whether that's in a lot of the emerging countries. I haven't seen that, but here too, I was there in uh, 98, I was there in 04, and then I've been there a couple times this year. But that's the kind of improvement I'm waiting to see. You're not going to see that in a, in a controlled environment. But as long as we have the embargo, as long as we have the travel restrictions, they've got the greatest excuse in the world to try to maintain the status quo. When, they, when there really is a, an effort to attract capital, and it will come in a serious way, uh, all that changes. They're going to have to reform, and they're going to have to reform in all aspects in the way they do business. So Steve, let me, let me just ask. Tipping points. What's the tipping point for a policy? Like we've all talked about, you know, it's it's hard. The election year is it frozen? Are piece, sure. are some parts uh, of Congress more amenable to this message or to another message? But what's it? You know, we have a majority of Americans who support this, and certainly America, the Americans who live in those four states. We have the Chamber of Commerce and large companies who support this. We have agricultural community to, who supports this. We have high-profile Republicans like Carlos Gutierrez who have come out sure. and support this. You know, and we've seen tipping points, like for example, on recent success on LGBT issues. How? how when does the tipping point happen? How, when does does it finally sort of move forward? I, mean, I think it should be now. I mean, obviously, I, I think, uh, uh, look, you've got a, a couple things that are inertia driving events. One is just the, uh, the way that Congress is operating now. That, that's a significant challenge in and of itself. And that pertains not just to this issue, but a huge number of issues that are even uh, less controversial than this. And this is not that controversial an issue any longer. Uh, as uh, Major indicated, you have the, you know, the, the presidential calendar and uh, you know, desire certainly by the uh, congressional leadership not to create obstacles or problems for anyone uh, uh, running for president in the, in the primary season. Uh, a couple of different political tipping points happen. One is, as I said earlier, if you have a presidential nominee uh, who signals to Congress that, you know, I'd really like to have this piece taken off the table so I don't have to worry about it in my first several years uh, or at least for several months of office. That's, that's certainly one thing that could, could uh, cause there to be fairly uh, swift action. But if, if that doesn't happen, I think it's going to take advocacy to do it. I mean, one of the reasons why I got involved with Engage Cuba and why uh, you know, Bill Lane is doing what he's doing uh, both at Caterpillar and at, and at the Chamber is uh, it will take an effort to make this, to, to make members take a position on an issue that otherwise they might want to put in their door and not have to think about, even though they know that it, it's probably not a dangerous issue uh, for them uh, politically. Uh, I, the other thing I think economically is the, what, what Bill spoke of is that if American businesses, American manufacturers and farmers and hospitality companies see the rest of the world coming in ahead of us and taking up market share that could be ours. I mean, one of the things that even in a very large island like Cuba, there are only so many great beachfront locations to put <laughs> nice hotels. And one thing that we hear from the hospitality sector is they're becoming increasingly concerned that at some point, when American companies finally get their turn at bat, it's all going to be taken over uh, by Spanish companies uh, and others. So I, I think uh, the, the sense that there are opportunities that are going to pass us by and the advocacy of that uh, to members is ultimately what's going to drive this to action, I think. Major, the, the, the president has, has really been critical in this change. And there are some rumors that um, 2016 may be the year of a first time um, 
in a long time a president going to Cuba. Mm -hmm. you, um, first of all, do you see this as a legacy issue for Obama? Do you see this as an important thing? And secondly, do you plan to jump on the airplane to go to Cuba with him? <laughs> well, do you think I, he's going to go? The president will go. He'll go, after, he'll go after the election. He won't go before the election, meaning November election, not Iowa <coughs> or New Hampshire. Um, so it'll be after the presidential election is settled. At least that's every indication I've gotten from the White House. And of course it's a huge thing. Uh, it is, I mean, I, I having covered uh, the American presidency for the better part of 12 years and spent a lot of time reading about it, everything a president does is a legacy issue, ladies and gentlemen. It's, that's part of the job. You're the president of the United States. You project power in every way. Some things are more resonant and historically significant than others. This would certainly fall into that category. Um, and the president will, his, history I'm sure will judge, get credit for making this choice and setting this in motion, because I do believe there is an inevitability about this transformation. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. You're impatient, you're impatient. It's going to happen. Right. That's clear. We're, we're not going to normalize relations with Cuba and 20 years from now still have an embargo and a travel ban. I mean, that's just not going to happen. The pace of that is the, the question. The end result, I don't think, is. Um, one thing I would to pick up on what Steve said a second ago. Uh, if this gets resolved in 2016, I think there is one scenario in which it does, in which it is added into other larger things that become a large legislative package at the end of the Obama administration that solves some problems that both sides would like not to visit on the next president for various reasons. And I'm not really talking about political altruism here. I'm talking about the possible dynamism of lame duckism. Yes. Because you're going to have, you have a lame duck president at the end, you have a lame duck uh, minority Leader Nancy Pelosi near the end of her term. Harry Reid's a lame duck, and Mitch McConnell, if not a pure lame duck, is, is certainly closer to that than he ever has been. Paul Ryan does not want to be Speaker for a long time. He said that on 60 Minutes on Sunday. He's not a lame duck, but he wants to get things done and is not the least bit afraid of putting together a large big deal that might include tax, tax reform and a huge infrastructure deal. If you start getting a dynamic like that where all these lame ducks say, this is my last chance to legislate and legislate big, and we can put the coalition together and we can move it rapidly, and get all this off the table and make that be our final act in Congress. I'm not predicting it, but I'm saying don't discount the possibility of that because there are incentives, personal and otherwise, for people who have been in power a long time and are nearing the end of their road and want to go out with something approximating a legislative flourish. If you get a dynamic like that, this can get added in because it becomes a sidecar and there is not a lot of controversy. There's a general philosophical agreement. The polling isn't bad. You can add this in. That, I think, is one p possible scenario where this might work. It's an interesting. You know, one of the uh, <laughs> temptations here is you sit back and you try to read what's going to happen. And uh, that's not my job. My job is to lead what's going to happen. And what we're trying to do is convince that this would be the tipping point right here. This meeting right here, the people that are listening, that we make the difference. I think the poll is really, um, uh, really precise in the, in the states they picked, and one in particular. Uh, ben Lambert, who uh, is one of our point people and leads at Caterpillar on this issue, uh, we asked, pick the US state, the US state that based on geography and based on uh, a population most approximates Cuba. And we went around, we asked people, what do you think it is? And someone said New Hampshire, someone said Delaware, and what have you. It's Ohio. Ohio is the most pivotal state there is in the election. Uh, the, the Cuba is identical in size, identical in population to Ohio. 
uh, Ohio has the most compelling numbers on why this, why uh, the U.S. should embrace change with Cuba than, than any other state. I really think that could be where the tipping point is. When you make the issue in Ohio, um, a lot of similarities there. But the goal here is not just to inform. The goal is to uh, drive people to action. We need your help. And uh, between us, we can make this a issue. And we can make it an issue that needs to be resolved, especially the travel restrictions. For, come on, how hard is that? I mean, what are you worried about coming back with too many Cohibas? I mean, that is not what you call a real threat. I'm worried about not worried. Not worried. That's right. Not worried. Me neither. So uh, my only point is it, it's time to bring about change. It's time for us to, to, to up the chatter. It's time for it to be a, um, uh, a debate topic. And uh, by us talking about it, we're going to assure that those things that happen. I'm going to be op opening up the floor in, in just one second. Glenn, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure that we want, at least on the Republican side, for it to be a de debate topic just because I don't, I, I don't you know, given... Uh, how the candidates have been characterized so far. I'm not sure that uh, that would be advancing the ball. Uh, it, you know, I think it has to be the leadership on this issue on the Republican side is going to have to come over the next year from, from the Congress. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know that it's a voting issue in Ohio in a presidential election. It, it probably is not. Uh, it's really more the painstaking block-by-block block block advocacy and lobbying that, that, that I think ends up moving this down the hill. Well, I was going to ask Glenn, I think, I think Major's scenario of a, of a possible big end-of-year deal where everything gets thrown in so that uh, people can feel that they've accomplished something, I mean, is that, is that going to be tolerated by the more conservative part of the, of the caucus? I mean, uh, look, it's really hard to project what they're going, what they're going to do on a, a big thing. I think, it, you know, on Something like this, from a bite-sized perspective, uh, given you know where the Freedom Caucus is and, and where the Tea Party presumably is, the Tea Party uh, supporters, um, I think it actually uh, could could go down uh, better and easier as a standalone issue. Uh, I mean, let's face it, capitalism works. It may not be perfect, it certainly, but it, it works better than anything else. And the Airbnb and the, you know the uh, the, the uh, informal taxis that they have and the the restaurants in people's homes, all those things are going to add, add up to more and more uh, trade and more and more um, people you know people wanting to work harder because they can actually help their families uh, get ahead and. Uh, live a better life, and, and those sorts of things are very appealing to conservatives in Congress. But remember, if they bring the call, they call the question, just on the budget deal, which the House Freedom Caucus didn't like, it rolled. Why? Because you brought the question to the floor, Democrats voted for it, half the Republicans voted for it, there you go. I mean, if, if, if you want to engineer it, you want to call the question, you want to lay it on the floor, and you know you have the votes on both sides, you don't need the House Freedom Caucus, right. necessarily. And on a big deal of the kind that I described, that would be the dynamic, just like it has been on the, the two variations of uh, Ryan Murray on the budget side. Right. Well, that would be a big, big change from where we've been over right. the last couple, last couple That's of years. That's what I mean. It would have to be something of, of a kind we haven't seen, but I don't rule out the possibility. Interesting. Let me open it up to questions. The gentleman there, there's a microphone coming. Would you just uh, tell us your name? and? Uh, hi. Yeah, good morning. My name is Jorge Solis. Um, I have a question for Mr. Bolger. Uh, the, the poll that you undertook in the four states, it's your sense that the responses came back from a ideological reason, meaning we need to be nicer to the Cuban people because they're nice to us, or for a more personal economic reason, 
In the case of Indiana, I can sell more corn, and therefore my standard of living will, will, will improve. That's a really good question. It's really hard to project what's in the minds. Uh, in fact, I would hesitate to do that. What's in the minds of respondents when they're answering a question? Um, some of them, certainly, it was you know uh, ideological, and others it was uh, economic, and others it was just pure. Look, we you know need a way to advance freedom, and this is one way to do it. So. I, I, I hesitate to say this was where, where the bulk of the people were answering the question from, uh, because I, you know we didn't we, we we didn't explore that in this survey, or uh, that would probably be more for focus groups, and, and that wasn't part of this project. Lady over there with her hand. Hi, Sharon Bovat, voice of a moderate. First, I talked to some Canadian people. They really do not want this to happen because they like to have their cheap vacations in Cuba. And so I think we're going to scare a lot of people that have had traditions and they're used to the Cuba the way it was and they're afraid there's going to be Burger King, KFC, everything loaded up. And it probably will be. But my question for you is, is there a way to educate the people that are totally against it? There has to be a way to do some type of public service. Now that you've got the polling, the people that are adamant, the people that remember the Bay of Pigs, is there any way to just educate those people? Has that been discussed? Because I think you're seeing a very you know, black and white. And is there any way to kind of bring everybody towards the gray area, like what you've just shown? Thank you. Uh, for, for those who are uh, opposed, uh, particularly for those who are ideologically opposed, I, I think it's, uh, it continues to be just an a, a advocacy process that, that proceeds incrementally. I, mean, I think it's, it's a matter of uh, a number of things. First of all, arguing that uh, the current policy that we have hasn't yielded results that they may be looking for. Uh, second of all, that uh, uh, at this point, the only people who are being isolated are American businesses and, and tourists. And, uh, and I think it's, it's continuing to make that, uh, that argument. The, the, other, the other place, interestingly enough, where advocacy is going on uh, really without any of our uh, involvement at all is at your neighborhood newsstand. If you go to your average newsstand and look at travel magazines and lifestyle magazines and architectural magazines, there are, there are always articles and cover stories about things that are going on in Cuba. It has become a fascinating, interesting place to want to visit, to want to explore and understand. And uh, you know, an average American will call their, their travel agent, find out, no, sorry, not for you. And so th there is an advocacy going on culturally, which I think helps to explain actually some of the movement. It's not just because of the work that Bill's been doing, we've been doing, that it, people are encountering it in their culture and they're starting to say, well, wait a minute, this is 90 miles off our shore. What is it that we can't go explore this? So I think, I think as, as Major said, th this will ultimately be resolved at some point. And the, the question is, how can we hasten it, particularly through a a, a political and a, and a legislative process, which is inherently sclerotic, uh, to try to make it happen at a time that, that, that really matches our, our impatient desire to see it done. And next time you talk to your Canadian friends, can you get a list of their favorite beaches and restaurants for us? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but you can't go as a tourist right now. Remember that. There's a restriction. You can go. There's a lot of different categories as far as people, people exchanges. But the, West, the best way to educate people is to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not that hard. I mean, that's how we learn about everything else. Um, and just a little bit of guidance for all the young people in the, in the audience. I've been with Caterpillar for 40 years, and I have made a career out of one basic philosophy, which is 
always position yourself to take credit for the inevitable. This is inevitable. Now, I've got Richard Suara here from USA Engage, and we left an ad out on the table that we took out in January of 1998 when we thought this was inevitable. It still is inevitable. But I really didn't think it was going to take 18, 17 years for that to happen, and hence the, the cicada reference. But the point is, this is going to happen. If you're going to uh, promote an issue, this is the issue you want to promote. There's going to be a lot of hiccups in the road once, once we're allowed to do business, once we're, we're fully engaged in Cuba. But you've got to get there first, and that's how you bring about change. Will there be KFCs and things of that sort? Maybe. There'll probably be a lot more Cuban food in this country. There'll be more franchises in this country. But, um, you know, this is, this is the way it works. And uh, so for the Canadian friends, you know, uh, they, they've known a, uh, an opportunity for a long period of time. But it's, it's, time, for, it's time for us to, to put this foolishness behind us and, uh, and see what the real power engagement is all about. One quick point on... Uh KFC and Taco Bell. Bell. So the Canadians are very involved in a Caribbean island called Turks and Caicos. They have a lot of the banks there, and most of the electricity is produced by Canadian firms. Turks and Caicos is very popular for many Americans. I've been fortunate enough to travel there. They've banned all American fast food restaurants there, and they're doing just great. It can be done, seriously. I mean, it's, it's, they, they said, we're not going to have that. We're not going to have franchise. We're not going to do that. We're not, that's not going to be part of our culinary atmosphere, and they're doing great. So it can be done. The lady here in the second row. Wait, can you wait for the microphone, please? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the, for the presentation. Uh, I was just curious, when we talk about inevi inevitability, uh, what about Guantanamo? Because I've heard that Obama's trying to move some of the prisoners to Great Saudi question. Arabia and some issues like that. Are there some issues on the Cuban side that may be the ones that create some pushback or, or setbacks, really, to what we're trying to achieve? That's a great question. I was in the newspaper the other day. So Did these you, are uh, related but not necessarily interlocked. The president wants to close Guantanamo. President Bush wanted to close Guantanamo. Congress is opposed to it. And that's a legislative hurdle that this president has tried to cross over many times, can't do it. Five more detainees were released over the weekend, sent to UAE. The president is contemplating and has asked for legal research about doing it all via executive order. That's just not going to be legally permissible. The, Legislative history and Congress's intent is crystal clear. No federal judge can miss it. It is a reality. And so legislatively and through the executive branch, this is going to either be resolved or the policy is going to remain. The Cuban government would like to see Guantanamo given back in time, the whole thing. That's not, that's not going to happen. So you have the, 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 the piece of land and what the Americans have there, and then you have the detention center or the prison. So that's two issues within one piece of land. We're not giving the land back in totality. We're trying to close the prison. This is deeply complex on, on both those issues. And if I think, uh, based on the conversations in Panama City at some of the Americas, if the Cubans were to prioritize, it would be travel ban embargo, and then they understand Guantanamo is a huge other kettle of fish, much more difficult to resolve. So they themselves would prioritize the other two things that have been dominating this discussion and understand that it's a much longer, tougher conversation for a lot of different reasons about Gitmo. Gentlemen here. There's a microphone coming from this side. Manuel Gomez with Progreso Semanal with for Mr. Law or any of the others. A few months ago, there was a vote on an appropriations amendment. Uh, the issue was brought to the floor, and the vote was pretty strongly um, um, pro-embargo, I guess. 
What do you make of that? Was it just uh, they were being nice to Congressman Diaz Palat because he heads the subcommittee, or do you see more in it? Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the uh, say two things first broadly, and then specifically about uh, about that. I, I think f first broadly on the on the, uh, the whole issue of inevitability. I, the, the one thing I always am concerned about, and, I, and it's borne by years of being in Washington, is that, that momentum is a deceptive thing. And you know, a determined minority can prolong a fight uh, a lot longer than you think. And, and that's why I think you know, constant advocacy, smart advocacy, constantly pushing the ball forward is absolutely critical. And I, I, I don't think without it, it, it will happen. Uh, you know, that, that particular vote was something that was unfortunate because I think what we're trying to do is, is set up wins. I think, and I think that's, that's what we want to try to uh, obtain. Uh, I would contrast that with what happened in the appropriations process on the Senate side, uh, where we were looking at almost certainly uh, a set of losses, and by engaging effectively, working individual members, working the business community, making sure that we were uh, in touch with the members and staffs, uh, we actually got two things that probably haven't been written about much. One is a one-year suspension of the travel ban, and the second is agricultural financing. Uh, that, that would help us to be competitive. Now, in the end, I don't know that either of those measures survive the cromnibus or whatever the end, end game is, but uh, I, I think it just shows that when, you, when we pick our fights and we, we play to win and we work the hill, that we can achieve positive results, but, but it, it's not the sort of thing that's going to fall into our lap. It's going to take a lot of day-to-day -day work. It's going to take polls like this. It's going to take engaging the local business community. It's going to take letters to the editor. It's going to take visiting offices, all that stuff, I think, because I do think that notwithstanding the fact that I think the broad cross-section of members on the Hill, Democrats as well as Republicans, are sort of generally like, oh, yeah, maybe we ought to be for this. Uh, there, are, there are reasons to oppose or reasons not to take action that we have to, we have to challenge uh, every single day to make this thing happen. Solomon in the back. Hi, thanks for the panel. Uh, um, Mark Hansen with WOLA. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting, well, first of all, Freedom Caucus, I think you guys are uh, slightly misrepresenting where they are on this. They, t two of the members of the Freedom Caucus have bills in the House to end aspects of the embargo. Others have been very amenable to getting on, largely because there's a libertarian streak. And the freedom to travel is very much part of that. Freedom to trade is very much part of that. Um, but my question is more along the lines of, we've seen polls like this before. Uh, there's a lot of support uh, for this policy across the country. I mean, Pew showed it. These polls show it. Um, the question, to my mind, is how do you get Congress to act on on these questions. And we've seen the business community beginning to show up, ag community certainly showing up. But I'm still struck by the number of offices that I walk into. And I've probably been to 60 or 80 Republican offices that don't know that the Catholic Church and the Chamber of Commerce, Amnesty International, National Foreign Trade Council, WOLA and Cato are on the same side on this issue. They just don't know that. Uh, so I think part of it is blocking and tackling, getting in and telling the story. But how does that get started? Will a chamber sort of score this? Uh, what kind of pressure can be put on members to act? Bill, I'm going to well, give the you. The only thing I'll say is the, uh, the chamber has indicated this is going to be a priority for them. 
that came out when we were having our initial meeting of the uh, U.S. Cuba Business Council. And um, you know, in, in, in just getting back to uh, the comment as far as a you know a, a really vocal minority. I mean, you know, you get something that quote is is big like TPA, and you need every vote possible, and two or three people get together, or four or five, and they say, you know, you got to maintain a certain policy, or else we're not going to vote your way. Uh, that that's always going to be um, be an issue. But but I think there are going to be some things that change in 2016. Um, We'll, we'll have a, a breakfast on this one. But I think the president's going to go down in the uh, early spring um, to, to Cuba. I don't think it's going to be at the end of the year, although you obviously have a lot better uh, access. But just picking up some of the, uh, the language from the Cubans and what have you, there's some expectation there's going to be an earlier presidential visit rather than a, a later one. Um, you know, it's going to be up to folks here. I mean, it's going to be part of the, uh, the presidential debate. Do you think this is effective policy? I mean, do you defend it? Do you want to promote it? Do you think unilateral sanctions, particularly as related to Cuba, has been the, uh, an effective policy and it's a policy that should be continued? I think if you, you have that debate in, in, in a very thoughtful, clear way, the answer is going to be overwhelmingly that we have to work together, we have to be multilateral, we, uh, we have to be very clear on our objectives. That's not been the case as far as Cuba is concerned. And um, you know, the, what, what really sticks out with you, when you fly from Havana to Miami, there's a point where you can see Key West and Havana you know, at night. And you're going, my god, this is only, you know, it's only 90 miles. And uh, it's, just, it's just it's anachronistic to, of, a, of, an, of another time, another policy, and it's, it's time to change. But the one thing I think we all have to remember you know, all sides are going to say, you know, commercial engagement is going to promote positive change or isolation is going to promote change or what have you. Ultimately, the change is going to have to come from the Cubans, and they're going to uh, manage the transition as they see fit. We can, we can make constructive suggestions. Uh, I've always been a believer in quiet diplomacy works the best, and multilateral forums work the best. But uh, if one side or the other takes uh, extreme positions, um, it, it's not going to happen that way. The Cubans are going to have to, to bring about this change. Uh, all we're doing is taking an excuse off the table that's kept it from happening. Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly looks like the Americans are far more interested in something fast, and the Cubans are much more interested in moving this as slowly true. as possible. Yeah. The lady over there has been very patient. Thank you. Uh, my name is Silvia Yuso from El Pais newspaper, Spanish newspaper. Uh, we've talked about the paces and the rhythm and the factors that might affect the, how fast uh, the U.S. changes its policies. My question is, um, on the Cuban side, regardless that they say they're not going to make any changes, political changes, there's going to be a major political change in two years and a half, which is uh, Raul Castro is going to leave power and somebody else for the first time over 50 years, and person that's not called Castro is going to take power. So. Is this something that could affect, that should affect the rhythm? How important is that a Castro, has, that the, any change has the seal on a Castro, that it has the blessing on a Castro? Is this something that could affect the, also the rhythm in, in the US in the changes of policies? Major, you want that? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that in the sense that I'm not in any way, shape, or form an expert on Cuban politics or how me members of Congress are going to look at that. I know that members of Congress, like they could do in most issues, could argue it both ways. One, you could say, let's do it now, because speed is of, of, the, of the greatest importance, and create a foundation 
for the post-Castro era that has us more engaged up front. Detractors would say, no, wait and let's see what happens after Castro and how their own politics sorts out so we have some sense of what we might be dealing with afterwards. Let's not seed those clouds ahead of time and give them something that may give financial assistance to the Castro regime that then they use to make sure that their inheritor gets the next crack at, uh, at power. So I, I honestly can't tell you. It is obviously a dynamic that's important. The gentleman said a moment ago, most members of Congress don't know who all the alignments are politically on this. I venture to guess exactly the same proportion, if not higher, wouldn't even know in two years this is what, what you just said is going to happen. So I think, there, I think that's an issue as well. Yeah, you know, I have to say, you know, when you when you go down, you know, and at least for me, all email traffic got cut off completely, which after five days becomes sort of liberating. Uh, it's sort of you start becoming civil to all your your friends and relatives. But the uh, but we had this conversation on Vietnam, tr trying to make the analogy. I mean, here we're on the uh, the cusp of having a free trade agreement with Vietnam, a country that we you know had over fifty thousand casualties, you know, deep seated feelings and what have you, and we're saying, well, what's the difference? I mean. Is it just the, the passion of the Cuban-American community or the passion of the Cubans or what have you? And uh, someone said, yeah, you know what the difference is? When we negotiated the, 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 the trade agreement with Vietnam, we weren't sitting across the table from Ho Chi Minh, uh, whereas you, know, you still have this, this, this memory of, the, of Castro and what have you. And then that inevitably brings, well, why don't we just wait them out? And then someone points out that their mother lived to be over 100, and you know that could be quite a while, and that would just sort of push it up so that um, uh, it, it would certainly be a lot longer for all of us. But the, 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 you know, we can come up with excuses for non-action. We can come up for, with excuses for avoiding eye contact or for mumbling. It's time to do this, and, um, and I do think it will be a legacy. Uh, we've got plenty of things to criticize the Obama administration on. Let's, let's throw them a bone on this one. They got this one right. Yeah, can I, can I just add one thing? On if you look at the poll, one of the things that struck me as interesting, first of all, none of the arguments were intensely persuasive for and against in moving people one way or the other. But the internal reform dynamics, the sort of the internal human rights record, stuff like that, was, was, was particularly non-persuasive to, to respondents to the poll. I mean, I, I think Americans are kind of view this in extremely practical terms, it seems to me. You know, what's going on in Cuba, the politics, that's not that important. I want to go to travel there. And at least some of them want to go do business there. And you know what's going on in the internal politics? That's that's yeah, that's somebody else's problem. Right, exactly. That, so I, I I just think that, that that's an issue that you hear a lot of members talk about that I think has no basis in terms of at least what your average American is thinking about. Cynthia. Did you wait for a microphone, please? Yeah, Cynthia Stinger with AECOM. And while you send your equipment there, we'll be right there to help the people put it to work. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, not being an expert on Cuba, but going back to about two questions about the Cubans and what they're going to need to do, how are they going to respond in terms of labor practices? My sense is when you work in Cuba, Cuba you pay the government and then the government pays the workers. On the scale of things they have to change, where does that rank? Yeah, I'm not going to get into a, <coughs> the, the, the reforms that are needed. I mean, from a, from a Caterpillar perspective, 
our, our first, uh, the first thing we needed to do was scope out the market. Uh, remember the musical, uh, it's a, or the music man? You gotta know the territory. So that's, that's, the first, uh, that's the first thing you have to do. And then the second thing you have to do is uh, you know, to try to get a feel for the potential of the market. Um, and for us, our, the, the issue that gives us our competitive advantage is our dealerships which are, uh, are unique among our industry and what have you. So we have to select a dealer for Cuba, and we're in that process now. And uh, then we're looking for branding opportunities as far as ways philanthropically to help the Cuban people. We've got some ideas that we're, we're moving forward on. We're not yet to the point where we can announce it. So you know, those are the steps. But the, this is where joining the uh, US Cuba Business Council becomes so important. One, it identifies opportunities but the other thing it does is it points out that um, uh, there's ways to encourage reform in a constructive way. And you can do that where you're not you know, on a, a program like this. You're, you're actually trying to get to yes. And that's what our main hope is, to have a forum where you can, can make suggestions that will allow you to succeed in Cuba. And then lastly, and this is something I think we all have to remember, we love to talk about exports. You know, Caterpillar is one of the biggest exporters and what have you. But we also believe in trade, which means we have to import activities. I was in uh, Pennsylvania giving a presentation, and I pointed out that, you know, you've got a lot of candy producers in Pennsylvania. Having more sugar coming in is not a bad idea, especially from a Pennsylvania perspective. And, you know, you can make that case in a, a wide range of other uh, industries and sectors. So trade's a two-way street. The Cubans get it. We really get it. We just can't talk about it politically. Let me just also point out, we published a paper on reforms in Cuba and, and uh, the need to reintegrate Cuba into the, into the economy. I would recommend it, it lists what Cuba has done. There have been some reforms. There is a, there is a free trade area around Mariel. Right. And um, that, has, that has made some impact, not as much, I think, as the Cubans would like. Um, but we list in that paper and we talk about all the reforms that are, that are needed. So I'd recommend that to you. Let me, I'm going to take a couple of the last questions because we're running out of time. I'm going to take uh, two or three, if I can. My name is Marisol Bonashi. I'm an entrepreneur business in New Jersey. More than a question, my, I have a comment to make. Being born in Cuba and raised in Cuba, I came in from Cuba in 1992, and I'm very supportive of whatever is going on, and I'm one of the ones that wants to go there and do business. Growing up, I remember people and my friends, everyone having the feeling that American has failed to us, that they left us alone. And I do believe that um, the policy that we have until now, that going away and leaving uh, the Cuban people alone, it hasn't been working. It has created a bigger problem. Because like he said before, it's like giving an excuse not to resolve the problems. It is the time to make the changes. It is the time for all of us to get involved and to do it for the real people in Cuba. If we are worried about the Cuban rights in Cuba, violations of human rights, we should work and make that stop. And the only way to do it is making business, going in there, and helping the people. Thank you very much. Let me take sign a, her sign her up. Yeah. <laughs> Let me, the gentleman in the back. Thank you so much, um, Adi Soto. Uh, my question is, uh, to what extent do you see these changes with Cuba, whether they be uh, economic or humanitarian or uh, security changes, affecting negatively or positively some of our other allies in the region, whether they be uh, the Dominican Republic or specifically Puerto Rico? That's a great question. 
Anybody else? Sir. Uh, Richard Sawoya from the National Foreign Trade Council. Um, since we're putting all the issues on the table, uh, just if you could speak to the claims issue in the context of eliminating the embargo. So what, one of the big issues, certainly if um, um, you travel anywhere in the Caribbean, I have a number of friends at the World Bank, they go to Jamaica, the Dominican Republic, you hear a real level of concern in the other islands about how the opening towards Cuba could eventually affect those other islands economically. I mean, there's no doubt. Is there, is there something, as you think about sort of a coalition to be put together, is there something that can be done to make sure that the World Bank and the Inter-American, we talked about infrastructure needs, also take, make sure that sort of the other islands, nations in particular, who are going to be affected by the, the massive interest in Cuba, really, that everybody, that the, the, the opening lifts all boats as opposed to only the Cuban boat. <laughs> I, mean, I think just the very fact that, that other parts of the Caribbean are concerned about the impact of normalizing uh, travel and trade with Cuba indicates what a tremendous market that is, what tremendous interest there is. Um, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not a, a trade and travel expert enough to know whether you can make Barbados feel better about it or not, but I think it, what, it, what it signals is that it's, you know, it, it's something where there's, there's a huge amount of interest, and, and they feel it, they know it, and uh, uh, you know, uh, other than um, simply making sure that, the, that there's a level playing field, I don't know there's a lot you can do. I mean, it, the truth of the matter is that, as, as Bill has said and others have said, uh, Cuba still has a long way to go to be a, anything approaching a fully functioning open market economy that could sustain the kind of growth and development that you have in these other uh, you know, Caribbean uh, destinations. It, it's it's going to take uh, a long time. Um, I know uh, James Williams, who, who heads Engage Cuba and has now become really one of the most trusted emissaries over there, you know, he, he spends a lot of time educating them on, on what, what's going to need to be involved to uh, to, to make that, that transition. But uh, I, I would say, again, not as an expert at all, I, I think that the, really the most important variable is just really how quickly Cuba itself adapts to the changes that would be necessary for it to really develop. And it will be a long time, I think, before even with everything that Cuba has to offer that it could be a competitor to, to much more developed destinations in the Caribbean. Do you want, do you want to take the claims issue? Well, or? Let, me, let me do it real quick. Marielle, uh, we were down there when Cuomo, Governor Cuomo was, uh, was visiting. His presentation for doing business in New York is almost identical to the Cuban presentation to doing, setting a shop in this economic zone of Marielle, which is 20-some miles um, of course, west. you are of, talking about New York, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, but, it, but it's the same thing. You, you'd think it was written by a bunch of Republicans. Yeah. No taxes for 10 years, this and that, easy regulations and what have you. And, um, and, and that gets back to the, the, the question on, uh, on employment practices and things of that sort. But it was, you know, you'd be hard-pressed not to uh, take a good look at Marielle if you're going to set up business in Cuba. As far as the claims situation, they've settled their claims with everybody else except the United States. You know, 
as long as you look back and you know we have uh, uh, avenues uh, or venues to resolve claims issues, but on the day they opened up diplomatic relations, Caterpillar took a full page ad out in uh, some publications, and we said the future begins today. And you know as long as we start focusing on the future, we can resolve everything. You know, there's obviously going to be a lot of people that only want to dwell on the past. There's some things that are going to have to be resolved that are, are uh, historical. But most of our attention has to be on the future. It can't be on reliving, you know, um, um, certain notions. We've we've handled claims in Eastern Europe. We handled claims in in Asia. We've handled claims everywhere else. We should be able to handle claims as far as uh, uh, Cuba is concerned. And uh, I want to thank you very much. I, I think just building on that. I mean, I think last uh, word. Yeah, yeah. Just 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 real quickly on that. I mean, I, I as sort of as implicit what Bill said. I mean, there, there are people who want to raise issues as a reason not to act. I think we have to turn those things into reasons uh, to act. And I think that's why, you know, with, with, uh, you know, what James has been doing with, with Engage Cuba and, and, and Luke Albee and me, I mean, I, I think our goal is to say, look, we can solve those problems if we have a basis of engagement, if we have a forward-leaning posture towards Cuba. Uh, that gives everybody an incentive to come to the table and start to sort these things out, rather than say we just have way too many problems. You know, the, you know, throw throw all this kind of miasma of issues in front of us, and then therefore that's a reason not to make it happen. You have to start the engagement process, and then you can solve those problems in a way that ultimately becomes more equitable. I want to thank all of you for for coming this morning. You're, you're the dream panel. My work was very little. Thank you very much. And